0: Holy crap, it's here. This has taken me seven months of
1: my life to complete, and I am super pleased how it turned out. What is Miguel talking about? It's my new book, Expat Secrets. You're going to be able to find it on Amazon right now. Let me just give you the full name of the book, because I think it says a lot, okay? Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. Boom. I really like that. Basically, the book breaks down everything you need to know for leading an international life. This is timely information and modern, and it's a fun read. You can buy your copy right now by going to Amazon and searching expat secrets. This will really help support the show to grow. And if you want to be an awesome human being, what I want you to do is leave the book an honest review on Amazon. It actually makes a huge difference to new authors like me. Seriously, I mean this. Please get a copy of the book and please leave the book a review. It's just good karma. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikhail Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest comes to us from Panama City, where his company Live and Invest Overseas is the world's savviest source for top opportunities to live better, retire in style, invest for profit, do business, and own real estate overseas. Please welcome to the show, Leaf Simon. Leif, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mikhail. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure to have you on the line today, Leaf. Why don't you take a couple of minutes and walk us through your backstory? How did you get started in this industry? Uh, well, that's complicated
2: and long, but I'll, I'll try and give you the short version here. So, I um, went to Thunderbird, which is the American Graduate School of International Management, and wanted to live and work overseas. So, my first overseas experience was working for a drilling company as a as an accountant, actually in Uh, various places. And unfortunately, I didn't realize before taking the job that oil is not located in where human beings should be. So they sent me to Chad, to Kazakhstan, and to northern Argentina. And about a year after I started with them, I left and went back to the States and still wanted to go overseas. So eventually, I met my wife, who is my partner in uh, living and Invest Overseas. And she was working for a publishing company that was sending her to Ireland and so we moved to ireland that was my first permanent move well we've been out of the states ever since so 20 years now and then from ireland um, we decided to go to paris because our daughter wanted to go to uh, high school there and then from paris we came to panama because we left the publishing company i ended up working for them as well we left the publishing company to start our own thing and looking around the world for where to base the business such as ours um, Panama made the most made the most sense. So we ended up in Panama about 10 years ago.
1: So 10 years in Panama. I'm trying to figure out the last time I was in Panama, I think, was 2003, 2004. So I was there just a little bit before you. But um, everyone I talk to, they say the place has changed a lot in the last dozen or so years.
2: It, it, it has. And I've been coming to Panama since, well, since 2000, right after the U.S. gave back the canal. And they went from a recession because... All the Americans were gone and not spending money anymore to a boom time that was just picking up in 2003 when you were here to um, the 2008 real estate uh, crisis, which was when the global real estate crisis, which was when I moved here. But the one thing about Panama is that it has the canal. They make a profit from it and they pump that money back into infrastructure. So they built the causeway when we were here uh, as as we just uh, moved here in 2008 and outside our window of our apartment. We could see in real time them filling in, you know, reclaiming uh, land to build uh, this, uh, not the causeway, sorry, the SintiCoast uh, Costera is what it's called, um, but the highway along the coast. And it was like watching a Discovery Channel show in time lapse. Every morning we'd wake up and there'd be more work done and every next morning more work done. So they've
1: uh, they've done a lot of with infrastructure in the last 10 years for sure. Oh, jeez, I bet. So talk to me a little bit about your business, about Live and Invest Overseas.
2: So we're... My wife's a writer, and so she likes to say we're a publishing company, which we are. uh, We're published online. I like to say we're an information company because what we try and provide our uh, readers is uh, information, on opportunities. So opportunities for lifestyle, opportunities for investment, opportunities for asset protection, residency, citizenship options. As well. And so we, we have our free letters and our subscription products, but we also do conferences. And um, once in a while, someone can talk me into doing some consulting, but I try not to do that because it's really, there's plenty of information that we offer. Otherwise, that most people don't really need any kind of one on one help. It's not that complicated to do what we do.
1: So you really do a lot of the the one to many type of thing, and you don't like to to go too in depth on one on one clients with the consulting or coaching.
2: Basically, because it gets expensive trying to pull out everything that somebody is trying to achieve. That time, I think they can figure that out in advance just using some of our products, and then just go to the locations that uh, that make sense.
1: Well, I'm a subscriber for a couple of your new different newsletters, and you have. How many newsletters at the moment going on? So
2: we have the main lifestyle one, which is the overseas living letter, and that focuses on a different destination each month where someone might consider spending full-time or part-time for living. We have the Simon letter, which is my offshore subscription service, where we go into more of the residency, citizenship, banking, asset protection stuff. And then we have the global property advisor, which is a uh, real estate specific subscription service where we find... What we believe, good real estate opportunities. Do um, some due diligence and write them up. Explain them to the readers.
1: And do you find that a lot of your subscribers will be on one letter, like the first letter, the second letter, the third letter, or do you really have like separate niches for each of these types of newsletters?
2: There's some crossover. I think you know everybody comes in, or most people come in through the free e-letter, which is the daily e-letter that is more lifestyle, and then from there they kind of self-select into the other the other topics. Um, We have a we have some country-specific e-letters for e-letters as well and Belize and Panama, so obviously those make sense for someone who decides they're interested in those uh, countries. And we actually recently heard from a reader apologizing for unsubscribing from certain of the of the e-letters, but he, was, he found what he wanted, so that was perfect. He unsubscribed from the things he decided weren't going to suit his interest and are keeping the things that he is interested in. That's our goal, is to, again, provide options and opportunities not every place for living makes sense for everyone you know some people want the beach some people want the mountains when you have a husband and wife or one wants the beach and one wants the mountains you know we can try and help them out as well but the world's full of opportunities you just have to find what suits you
1: well absolutely and i think that there's a lot of opportunities outside of the new york stock exchange or the tsx or something like this you know there there's a big world out there, and I don't understand why so many people decide that they want to keep all of their money in the United States or all of their money in Canada or Australia, depending on where they're from. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense to me.
2: No, it, it doesn't make sense to me either. And I laugh at the people I meet who say, Oh, but I have a fully diversified portfolio, investment portfolio. And So, okay, what are you invested in? Well, I own these 10 stocks and these three mutual funds and some bonds in my Schwab account or whatever. And it's like, okay, so you're really not, you don't understand what diversified means. You're just falling for what the financial advisors in the US like to
1: say is diversification because that's what they have to sell you. Exactly. It'll be some type of shiny brochure, you know, that probably costs. $10 $10 to make that doesn't give you any real information It's not legally binding whatsoever. And like you said, I have a few different mutual funds with stocks that are overlapping, all on the same exchange, all in the same currency, all bought at the same time. So there's no time diversification. It's ridiculous.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I've read quite a few issues of the Simon letter, and that's kind of the stuff that I really want to dig into with you today. Can you break down what type of topics you talk about on that newsletter? So
2: we try and keep up with the, the offshore world is ever-changing. Uh, you know, People write in to complain to say, well, I just, you know, recent example, um, you know, I just wrote in to your, your DR attorney, and she says, now I have to make the $200,000 investment to get the six-month citizenship track, track, shortcutting some of the topics there. But things change. So, yes, yeah, the government has decided to you know, enforce rules and so if you want your citizenship and apply for your citizenship in six months you got to actually make the investment otherwise you got to wait two years either way it's still a great deal but people when things change they you know americans don't seem to like change um, especially when it's not in their favor and they they don't get it but that's what we're trying to keep up with in the assignment letter is the changes that you know we talk about the citizenship by investment programs as they change Sometimes it's hard to even keep up with the changes because they change and then they change back before you're even really aware of the first change. Like after the hurricanes last year, many of the the island citizenship by investment programs put on a sale, um, but the sale expired in March. So you didn't really have much time to, to react to that kind of thing. We cover... Residency options, which are, of course, changing. Try and cover banking options, which, as I'm sure you know, are more complicated and difficult for Americans these days. And then just general opportunities for investment and different kinds of projects that we find as we travel around the world.
1: Well, and I remember speaking about the banking. I remember listening to I'm not sure which recording it was. It was something you were on tape saying that you basically had to carry or you had to basically have a spreadsheet to keep track of all the different bank accounts that you have around the world.
2: Well, but yeah, I have a spreadsheet, keep track of that on my real estate investments, And right. So we recommend if you if you know if you have a rental property in a country, you probably want a bank account in that country. Um and I have rental properties in, I don't know, four or five countries. So of course there's bank accounts in those countries. And then we have our business accounts and all of that. And for, you know, you got to file the F-bar if you meet the threshold of $10,000 in offshore bank accounts. And so yeah, I keep the spreadsheet just so I don't forget anything, basically. Some accounts are just there and they, don't, they, like I had to set up a bank account in the Dominican Republic to apply for my residency there. I put 30 bucks in it, but I still have to report it on my F-bar with everything else. So it's just, You know, it's a nuisance factor, but I had to have the account to achieve something else.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that's quite funny, you know, because most people will, unless they live this type of expat lifestyle, a lot of people will have one bank account and that's it. They'll live their whole life through it. And well, going back to diversification, that's definitely not diversifying, but uh, taking it to the extreme when you need to do a spreadsheet. I think that's awesome. I think that's so funny.
2: (laughs) Well, a friend of mine years ago suggested that for passwords and it just evolved into, you know, basically keeping track of my life.
1: So let's dig into the real estate a little bit. Why do you think that investing overseas in real estate is so advantageous to people?
2: Well, it gives you, well, let's start with why real estate on its own. I've been a real estate investor in the, well, in the US. I bought one property, did really well, and then I moved overseas. But I like real estate because it's an asset you can control. So talking about you know the stocks on the New York Stock Exchange, you buy the stock and then you're at the mercy of, who you probably don't even know who you're the mercy of if you don't even check to see who the CEO is, but you have no control over that stock if it goes up and down what that company does. So in my mind, most stocks are not terribly different than going to Las Vegas. Real estate you control the asset. So one example of someone who did a, uh, a very interesting thing years ago on the island of Roatan, three friends bought a piece of land on the island. They carved it up into no sorry two friends carved up into three pieces of property, sold one of the lots for what they paid for everything, and then they each basically had a lot for free that they could do what they want to. Build that rental house, you know, sell their own lot and double their money. Lots of options there. If you own a rental property, especially in a lot of the markets that we look at, you can switch from short-term to long-term, long-term to short-term, depending on how the markets change. We did that with the apartment I'm sitting in right now. We bought it as short-term, did really well for a couple of years. Panama Change the rules to not allow short-term rentals in the city. Any rental under 45 days is technically illegal in the city. So we switched it to long-term and did really well. And then after the kids moved out and last one went away to college last year, we moved back into this one-bedroom apartment and we're using it ourselves. So you have flexibility with real estate that you don't have with stocks. Then going offshore with that, you have diversification of economics, you get diversification of currency. And for the lifestyle that My wife and I wanted to create, we figured out a long time ago, what would make sense is to have passive income in the currency of the countries where we want to spend time. So we have rental properties in Europe that generate euros. We have rental property in Colombia that generates pesos, and we have rental property in Panama that generates dollars. So for us, then we don't have to worry about exchange rate much of the time because we just the euros stay in euro and we spend euros. Doesn't matter what the dollar is doing to the euro because we already have the euros.
1: That's a really interesting concept. I never thought about it like that, but that actually makes perfect sense. Um, I usually have investments in lots of different currencies, but I never think about them as income generating. So that when I'm actually there, I can live my life. I think more of it as just being diversified through the currency in case the dollar tanks or the, the pound rebounds after Brexit or anything like this.
2: Right. And and that makes perfect sense. And again, much depends on what one is doing with their life and how they're, they're living it. But if you're only invested in your home currency, whatever that is, um, US dollar, Canadian dollar, euro for Europeans, you're, you're not diversified. And the the world again is ever changing and things go up and down at different times. So, uh, smarter to have it spread around a little bit.
1: Yeah, I agree with you there. So, talk to me about the types of real estate investment that are going to be really hot, you think, in the coming days. Well,
2: I've been focused personally on agriculture as much as I can focus on anything these days, but on agriculture for the last eight or nine years because it, it just makes sense. You can own the land, you're growing something that is never more demand, and you have Have that cash flow coming in. So, the problem with agriculture is that in most cases, you've got to do it yourself or spend a lot of money on a big farm that you then hire a farm management company for. So, I've looked for companies that are setting up their farms, but offering opportunities to smaller individual investors. And there's a few, there's more out there that don't quite make the grade, but owning the underlying asset is is kind of my main target. There's lots, I've seen lots of agricultural offers in the US, but they're again, they're selling shares. So, you know, your real estate is the underlying asset and there's a cash flow from the crop, but you own shares of the company and there's some management person behind it that can run off with the money or screw up or do something and you can end up with nothing. If You actually own the land underlying asset. If the management company screws up, you still own the land. So that's kind of my baseline premise there.
1: So, how does that work? You buy the land and then you find the management company who's going to manage it for you, or you go to the management company who owns the land and you buy a parcel of that and they continue to manage it.
2: So, for the developers that we're working with, it's the latter. So, they actually have land, but to ban their business, they're offering pieces of the land and they will implement the farming for you. And so, it's fairly straightforward you can invest well, of the three that we're working with they work differently the one in Panama you own the land and you contract with them to manage the land and that investment's around forty thousand dollars in Thailand we're actually working with an aquaponics company so there you're actually buying the piece of equipment not the land and foreigners can't own land in Thailand anyway so it uh, wouldn't make sense and then they are managing the aquaponics systems uh, their greenhouses and selling the produce and then actually we just started working with a a company in France where the product is tree-based and France has all sorts of complications for transfer taxes on land and things like that would make it expensive to own the land. So there you actually just, you own the trees. So, and you hire the company to manage the trees for you. So there's different ways to do it. The best, cleanest way is if you own the land, but it's not possible
1: in all markets for various reasons, that makes sense, so i I suppose then they're using it as a way to raise capital, and then they'll probably take say a percentage of the man- like a percentage of the crop yield as a management fee or something like that
2: exactly so they they'll manage the whatever it is trees, and harvest the production, sell it to the market and that's the one key thing if you find one of these things, you want to make sure you know if not everybody can grow stuff, so you need to make sure they can grow the stuff. Not everybody can has an outlet to sell it, so you need to make sure that they have the marketing outlets as well. And then they, for the that whole process, they take a, a management fee. Typical is in the you know in the range of 15 to 30 uh, percent, depending on the type of project, and you get the the balance. And so in the case of the and that's not unheard of in large farming. So if you owned, say, so you bought a farm in Uruguay for a million dollars, and you just hired a management company, and the management company paid you. Your rent as a percentage of the production for U.S. tax purposes, that's farm rental income. And so you're getting whatever agreed upon uh, percentage in that case. And it's the same thing with these uh, individual targeted projects.
1: And do these type of investments, have you seen this type of business model done in, say, the United States or in North America? Or is this something that you really find only overseas when you take your business abroad?
2: I have only seen them overseas. Again, the ones in the U.S., they're offering shares of the company, so it's not quite the same thing. And on the U.S. side, offering shares of a company means they got to jump through a whole series of SEC rules as well. I've seen that model, the share model as well, overseas. It's harder to do the land model for various reasons. In Colombia, for example, we started to work with a coffee company years ago, and they said they had things figured out. And they did, except for one thing. The area in Colombia where they were located, the EOT, which is the Municipal Land Management Plan, didn't allow for parcels of agricultural land below a certain size and the size of land that they were selling to individual investors was below that certain size. So they had to revamp how they were operating because they weren't going to be able to give individuals title on their specific piece. They, they figured out a way to, to make it work for that project and then started doing things a different way on the next project. So it's not easy to find both bureaucratic and uh, cost reasons. And like I said, in France, it'd be cost prohibitive to do the, the land ownership model
1: in these smaller parcels. Well, that makes sense. And then I guess the obvious question is the type of returns that you would get on something like an agriculture play. And like I don't want to tie you down on specifics, but just as a general, are they higher than what you would expect investing in your backyard in the United States? Or are they on par? Or how does that kind of look?
2: Um, For any agricultural project that I look at, you're going to see things in the good double digit range. So 12 to 17, 18% on an IRR basis. I talk about IRR conferences and my wife gives me a hard time because she says nobody knows what an IRR is. That's the only way to compare some of these things because the fruit plantations we talked about in Panama, they're planting the trees and your first cash flow isn't for until year three or year four. So you've got some zero cash years that have to be made up by the cash years. Those cash years, go out to you know, 20 or 30 years. In fact, these trees will produce for 50 years, but I tell the developers to stop their IRR calculations by year 30 because after that, it's just I mean, it's hard to make projections for 30 years anyway. Beyond that is just insane. So the IRRs end up being in the good double-digit uh, range for anything. But to compare the fruit tree production to, say, a timber investment. So we, I've also done timber investments here in Panama, and you don't harvest peak tree, which is what we have here, for 25 years. So how do you compare the return from 25-year peak investment to a 20-year fruit tree plantation investment? you got to boil it back to the the IRR. And for long-term investors, legacy investors, timber can be a a great thing because there's nothing to do for those years except let the trees grow. So you can't sell the cash flow, even if you spend the cash flow, sorry.
1: And I would imagine that with these types of investments, we're really talking about something a lot more conservative than And like, I don't want to Pick up, Well, actually, screw it. I don't mind picking on some of the tech stocks like Netflix and Tesla and bullshit like this. Investing in trees or investing in fruit-producing trees, that seems a lot more conservative to me.
2: Yeah, you're right. In a way, it definitely is, especially the trees. I think that might be one of the most conservative things. And some of the wealthiest companies in the U.S. and wealth has been made in the U.S. from timber plantations. And so, right, you the trees go on the ground and you let them grow. And the nice thing about timber is that if the year that you planned to harvest timber prices again in the case of Panama if tea prices aren't what you want them that year, well, you can just let the damn thing grow for another year, become more valuable, have more timber and sell at next year's prices hoping that they get to where you want them to be. So it it offers some flexibility and one thing we promote the timber stuff for is legacy planning. So, you know, a lot of our readers you know, they're ready for retirement so they're in their maybe as young as 50s but 60s some of them 70s and you know a 70 year old 75 year old isn't buying a teak plantation for his retirement when he's 100. He's buying a teak plantation for his grandkids college or his great grandkids college and so that, that money will be there when the younger generation need it rather than pissing it away through just consumer spending.
0: just going to take a quick break. Okay, new book is here. It's called Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money,
1: Live Overseas and Pay Zero Taxes. This book took me seven months to write and publish. And it's a culmination of some of the best stuff I've learned over my 20 years living as an expat. I cut out all the crap and tried to give you the real meat with this book. If you ever wanted to live overseas, or if you are already living overseas and you want to take things to the next level to legally reduce your tax bill to live a more international life and get the best of everything planet Earth has to offer, then you must go to Amazon right now and purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Pause the episode and go take a look. It's cool. I'll wait. Seriously, you guys are going to love this. Enjoy the book. Talk to me about how something like this would work from a tax standpoint, like just in a general vanilla type of look at it. Is there any advantages for investing in agriculture for doing this overseas? Um, No. Again, it falls under farm rental income,
2: which is better than farm income. So if you're a farmer yourself, farming is your job and you file a Schedule F for your farm income and you get to pay Social Security taxes on that farm income. If you're just an investor and it's farm rental income, you're not hit with those social security taxes, and then you have you know, all the normal deductions for a rental property. Although there's not a whole lot to deduct on a tree plantation versus you know, maintenance and stuff that you would have on a rental apartment. So there's no benefit for doing it. it's passive income, so you wouldn't you wouldn't qualify for the farm during income exclusion or any of that kind of thing. But the the cash flow is Excellent. The one thing that someone could do with regard to the agriculture in Panama, Panama is a jurisdictional taxation country, but also has excellent other tax-free opportunities. So Panama doesn't charge income tax on bank interest or on agricultural revenue up to $350,000 of ag revenue a year. So for an American that bank interest doesn't matter. You still have to report that on your U.S. tax return to pay taxes on, in, on the U.S. For you know, a European living in Malaysia, they can open a CD in Panama and pay no taxes anywhere. On the agricultural side, if someone has a Roth IRA and they invest using the Roth in the agriculture in Panama, then it's tax-free in Panama and then it's
1: tax-free coming out of the Roth. And that's a very efficient use of your Roth IRA overseas. So a self-directed Roth, and then putting it in the agriculture, and then you're only going to be taxed when it comes
2: out. No, on the Roth, it's not taxed at all. That's the benefit. On the traditional, it would be taxed when it comes out. So doing the agriculture play in Panama is is a good way to go offshore and taking your Roth IRA and, say, investing in a rental property in Buenos Aires, the rental property is going to be taxed in Buenos Aires, even though the net of that isn't going to be taxed on the U.S. side, if you see what I mean.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now that makes sense. With a lot of your clients, do you recommend that they hold these overseas investments in their own names, or do you help them to set up LLCs, which will control the asset?
2: So there's, again, it depends on the person. We had one uh, conference attendee uh, years ago, because we do talk about holding your offshore assets in an offshore LLC. And we came up and said, Leaf, do I really need to do that? I said, well, and he listened to, he'd been to several conferences and, and knew the reasons for it. And I'm like, well, so let me ask you some questions. Do you have kids? He said, yes. Do you care if they spend a lot of money and a lot of time going through probate for this property that you're planning on buying in Panama? He said, no, I don't care about the kids. I said, then put the property in your own name. It's easier, it's faster, it's less expensive. Um, So the the reason to do it is some asset protection offshore, right? If you have an LLC that owns your offshore assets, there's a a level of asset protection, especially outside of the country that the property is located. But my main reason for doing it is estate planning. So so, my kids don't have to go through probate in Panama, Croatia, Colombia, France, Portugal. I try and put all of my real estate holdings held by a single offshore LLC, and so then, when I die, they just have to deal with that offshore LLC, and there's no probate issues in Nevis, no forced airship rules like there are in France and other countries, and everything just flows that way. Now, there are other reasons you may want to put property in your own name, for example, Croatia. Croatia doesn't charge capital gains tax on real estate if you own it for more than 3 years but only if you own it in your own name. So the property I hold in Croatia is held in my own name for that reason.
1: And so would you traditionally have a one type of like say umbrella LLC that would control your investments in many different countries or do you usually have a separate structure for each investment?
2: I have just the one umbrella for the most part there's again there's some for other reasons there're other entities involved in some cases. The reason to have each property held by a single structure that can help you avoid or bypass, is a better way, local transfer taxes. So most countries charge a transfer tax. If you have the property held in an entity, you sell the entity, the property's not changing owners, right? So in that case, there's you can avoid the the transfer tax when you go to sell. But Downside to that is the person that you're selling to is taking on a corporation he doesn't know anything about. A corporation that owns the property is that there could be unknown liabilities for that corporation. So it, you got to do more due diligence if you're buying the property that way. But for the seller, it's great because it does help mitigate taxes when you sell. The other downside is you own 12 properties overseas and you put each one in an entity. That's 12 entities set up at a $1, thousand fifteen hundred bucks plus five hundred eight hundred dollars a year for each one of those. There's a lot of overheads. And so you you need to analyze it property by property and investment by investment to see you know what's your ultimate goal. If you're planning on flipping something in a couple of years, it can make sense to put it into an entity. And then sometimes you have to put it into an entity. I owned property in the Galapagos Islands years ago and the only way to do that was to quote partner with the Galapagan. So I had to set up a corporation that was gonna own the property and I gave one share out of a thousand to the Galapagos and that Got through the bureaucratic process and we were able to, to get title in on that property. I've since sold it because in that case, again, I was paying $500 a year on a property that had a—I mean, it was a cheap property, it was a $15,000 property. The math just didn't add up and it was just a piece of land and I actually never saw it. So I've ended up just finally selling it to some American.
1: I never would have imagined buying land in the Galapagos Island. How did, <laughs> how did that come about? There's got to be some type of story there.
2: Well, I went to Ecuador a lot between say 2000 and 2005 and just knew a lot of people. One of the attorneys that we were working with um, was doing this project on the island. 3% of the islands are held privately. The rest is all you know, national park or whatever. And so I bought it simply for the cocktail party value of it. You know, go into a cocktail party and say, Hey, you know, I own a lot in the Galapagos. People would like, most people are like, Where are the, what are the Galapagos? But uh, in our <laughs> circles, that was the cool thing to say. For the price, you know, of a small, cheap uh, hatchback, so that was the main reason I did it. But then the administrative hassle of filing the U.S. tax return for that entity every year and paying the annual registration fees for the entity just became too much, and so I decided to, to dump it.
1: Did you ever end up making any capital gains off that? Or did it appreciate in value, or did you just pretty much get rid of it for what you paid for it?
2: No, nah, it was a break-even deal. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't expect to make money on it. So that you know, I went into it again, just knowing that I was just doing this for the fun of it.
1: That's too funny, and it's like it was just a piece of land. It wasn't agriculture. You weren't growing trees there or anything like that. Oh yeah, yeah. No,
2: this was well before the agricultural thought. And uh, right, it was. It, he did a small subdivision. He carved things up into lots, and that was it. It was, and in fact, it was an unserviced lot. You had to put in your own. I mean, electricity was nearby, but you had to put in your own electricity, septic, et cetera.
1: Oh wow. Any other random places like that that you bought property or made crazy investments?
2: Uh, well, one recommendation I make to people, and I have a lot of rules that I talk about and put out in my writing and the conferences, and I break some of them often, but I put the rules out there so that you know the rule. And if you're going to break the rule, then you, you know you're breaking the rule and know that there's a different risk factor than following the rule. And so one rule that I tell people, you should go, you got to go see what you buy. A lot of people will buy sight unseen. I've bought sight unseen. that's a lot in the Galapagos. I still own a piece of land in Canada that I've never seen and didn't see it before. And I still haven't seen it. And it's probably worth about what I paid for it as well. But it's seven acres with pine trees. So I figure if the world goes to complete crap, I can buy a parka and go to Canada and build a log cabin or something. It's just naturally forested. and But it was a, a small island connected to the mainland by a causeway. A developer friend of mine found it and told me about it i'm like ah, that sounds cool so again it wasn't much money i said sure i'll take one of the one of the you know pre-pre-construction lots that he was doing there for investors and then just really forgot about why i I don't forget about it because i get the tax bill every year there it's on the spreadsheet but a few hundred dollars a month just to know that i own some trees on some landing on oceanfront it's great and if nova scotia ever really takes off again from a value perspective i'll probably make some money but it's a backup plan so so the one rule is Go see what you buy. The other rule is don't put, I say, more than 5% of your net worth into any single deal. I've broken that rule in the past. I may end up breaking it in the future. But if you break it, then you do more due diligence. And then the other big rule is don't spend so much money on due diligence that it means you have to make so much profit, so much more profit on the investment. So someone doing a $40,000 agricultural parcel in Panama, you don't want to go spend $10,000 on due diligence. That's just, I mean, it should be logical, but some people don't process it that way. And so you want to do your due diligence.
1: Really? You see that type of thing happen?
2: Yeah. I've seen people go and say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going because another rule is use an attorney when you buy a property overseas but for, I break that rule myself as well, but I've been doing this long enough and I know the countries well enough, but for someone just coming in, you definitely want to use an attorney, a local attorney to help you go through the real estate purchase process and check the title, attorney's do that overseas, not a title company. And so you want to use an attorney, but you don't want to spend $10,000 on an attorney for a $40,000 deal. That just, of course, doesn't make any sense.
1: So I'm interested. What are the other, the other Leaf Simon rules? I, should, I feel like I should be writing all of these down because this is brilliant.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I should probably write them down too. I can't remember any off the top of my, my head right now. but
1: uh, I'm telling you, this is the next product. This, this needs to go in your bookstore.
2: <laughs> I'll start. I'll start writing them down as I as I think about them and as I say them at conferences. And so maybe next time we talk, I can have a list of ten or fifteen.
1: Perfect. It's like the, the the twelve commandments of investing overseas. There you go. With a lot of these types of deals, do you work directly with the developer? Do you do you basically market for a developer, or are you doing joint ventures? And like, how does something like that look?
2: So for the live and invest overseas business, we we do real estate marketing. And so I'll go in or someone, that, you know, one of my colleagues or one of our staff will go and embed a project. And in fact, we get you know, emails daily by developers in different parts of the world asking if we'll market their project. And we ignore most of those them out of hand for one reason or another and maybe look at, I don't know, half a dozen new projects a year and might not take on any, but maybe one, one or two a year to tell our readers about because we think that makes sense for the readers. So we're working with the developers in that way. I actually have my own... Development project here in Panama, a residential development that we've been doing for a while. But rarely do I joint venture. I don't have time for paying attention to partners, and my wife, my wife has a rule: no partners. So that answers that question. Um, rarely will we go into a into a deal with a partner. It'd be someone that we've known for a long time and uh, trust that they're going to make it work. And if they don't make it work, then we're okay. You know writing off the investment. Interesting, interesting.
1: And then I'm sure with a lot of these Panamanian uh, investments or some of the other investments overseas, are you able to couple um, like residency and things like that with these types of investments?
2: Yes, absolutely. There's a lot. A lot of countries have specific real estate investment programs. So Portugal is the one we talk about most right now. In these cases, they're called the Golden Visa program, kind of the industry term for them, and. In the case of Portugal, you can invest anywhere from 280,000 to 500,000 euros, depending on the age and location of the property, and get uh, residency. And that particular residency in Portugal means you only have to be there effectively on average one week a year to maintain
1: the residency. And this is one thing people don't think about. What a dream. That's perfect. <laughs> That's amazing.
2: Yeah, it's great for Portugal and people wanting to go to Portugal, but the biggest investors in these kinds of programs are really uh, Chinese and Russians who want an option and potentially another passport. Although China doesn't allow dual citizenship. So I don't know how they work that out.
1: Yeah. Well, I know that one very well because my wife is from China and it's a bit of a nightmare trying to figure things out and how we're going to go and where we go on vacation and things because her passport only goes to something like 88 countries. And then with mine as a Canadian, and it's like 160 or something like right. that, it really uh, changes our travel plans every year. Right, exactly. Getting those visas or, or not being able to get visas in some cases um, can be a hindrance. And so for
2: people from China, Russia, pe- places that have bad travel documents, they are the biggest target for the citizenship by investment programs and these golden visas. Because the Portugal golden visa program, if once you have... Resident, legal residency for five years, you can apply for citizenship. And so it's a, it's a low cost way to get citizenship over time versus the more expensive routes of doing the citizenship by investment program. The key to these residency programs, though, you can invest in real estate in Columbia as well. For example, Columbia offers a lower investment for certain residency programs that qualify for what they say temporary residency. So you have to renew that every year. Or if you invest more, And real estate is in the more category. Uh, It's permanent residency. Well, if you have temporary residency in Columbia, you have to be in the country at least one day every six months on a rolling six month basis. If you have permanent residence, you have to be at least one day every two years on a rolling two year basis. So you got to make sure you understand those rules to maintain your residency
1: well cuz i would imagine that a lot of times they're not going to be very forgiving if it's supposed to be 6 months and you're 6 months and a week or something like that then they pretty much have any right to uh to revoke this type of thing
2: right it's it's within their parameters to to be able to say okay you no know, we are canceling your residency and then you've got to you've got to start over and now you've got a black mark on your residency uh, program some people say ah well they're not going to they're not going to do the math or catch it but you, you never know And I I met a guy who was playing this game in the Schengen region um, working. He was traveling to Amsterdam, um, working as an engineer, 30 days on and 30 days off. I don't know what the industry or the the company was. And for his 30 days off, one time he decided to fly his wife over and have a 30-day vacation in Italy. The wife went home. He went back to Amsterdam. All was fine on that trip. Then he had his next 30 days off and came back. And because all of his stamps were Dutch stamps, the the Dutch immigration officer did the math and said, you've overstayed. And in, in the Schengen zone, you can spend 90 days in a 180-day period. So him 30 days on, 30 days off was fine as long as he kept doing it that way. But when he spent those extra 30 days in Italy, he then was overstayed for that six-month period. And the immigration officer sent him home. He couldn't come back to work for two more
1: months. That's ridiculous. Well, it's not ridiculous, but it's heartbreaking. Like i
2: yeah exactly it, it 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 he he was he he broke the rules and he got caught so the question is if you don't go to Colombia every six months, are they gonna figure it out well the immigration every immigration service in the world now except maybe eritrea has is computerized so they can see when you've come and gone in their system
1: yeah, so we're not relying on them to pull out a calendar and then start going through things count them out physically. All of this stuff is going to be done automatic. <laughs> So what are some of the other hot uh, places to get residency? Because I, I, the first one I think of that is probably the simplest is where you live in Panama.
2: Right, right now, Panama is, uh, well, we, we, we argue internally about the term easiest. So we have a, a colleague who's lived in I don't know, four or five Latin American countries and he always does it himself. I always use an attorney for my residency. He always does it himself because um, he's he, he wants to do it himself plus he wants to save the legal fees. But he, he, he insisted that when he got his Columbia residency, the Columbia was the easiest, and for process, Columbia might have been the easiest. And then he moved to Mexico. And now he says Mexico's the easiest from a qualifying perspective for North Americans, especially and Europeans. Panama is the easiest because right now Panama has the Friendly Nations visa, which means anyone holding a passport from one of 50 countries, and I couldn't tell you the whole list, but again, it's you know most Western countries, and I know Japan and South Korea are on the list as well, and. If you hold the passport, you're eligible for residency. Now, there's a few things you have to do. Uh, The simplest thing is to set up a corporation, which will cost you, I think, now maybe twelve, twelve, fifteen hundred dollars $1,500 in Panama. You have to open a bank account and put $5,000 in the bank and get a letter from the bank that says you have the $5,000 in there. Once you have the letter from the bank, you can take the money out. Again, there's nobody checking uh, that kind of thing. Then you apply for residency. Once you get your residency approved, it's permanent residency from the first approval as opposed to many of the other, in fact, almost all of the other residency options in Panama, which are temporary residencies, which require a minimum of, of two or three uh, renewal processes before you get permanent. And so once you have your permanent residency in Panama, then you have your permanent residency in Panama. So you don't have to stay in Panama. Uh, you can come and go you know, as you please. With you know, As a resident, you get to go on the shorter resident line when you come into the international airport. And so a lot of people are using Panama as a place for their what we call their backup residency, so a place to bug out to should they decide that wherever they live has become you know too much of a of a hassle.
1: And then with this type of visa, this allows you to work, this allows you to buy property, to invest everything, correct?
2: That yeah, it, you can Buy property and invest in Panama, there's no restrictions on foreigners, but the work thing uh, is important. Most residency programs around the world don't come with an automatic right to work. A few do. Um, In in this case, the Friendly Nations visa for Panama does. So that's another benefit on the Panama side. Other countries where if you just get residency, you can work include Ecuador and the Dominican Republic. There are a few that uh, that allow you to work once you just get
1: regular residency. Mm, Very interesting. And then from this, this does often lead to citizenship. So you can become a Panamanian citizen and have a passport and a travel document and everything, correct?
2: Exactly. And so if someone wants a, a second citizenship, they need to dig in a little bit deeper and to make sure they understand both what is going to qualify them for naturalization. So there's the time period of residency. In most countries it's five years in, in and it's five years. Portugal is five now, it used to be six. Um, they changed that last year. And I think Columbia is five years. The DR that we talked about earlier is two years unless you invest $200,000. So five years is is the norm. But there's a difference between having Panama residency as a backup plan and having Panama residency with the goal of getting the Panama passport. If you want the passport, you're going to have to show a connection to the country, which means you're going to need to spend more than a day every two years or you know, a day every year or whatever in the country. Owning property will help, of course, showing that you have connections, friends, because the people in most cases for Latin American countries that I know about, they'll ask for references and talk to your neighbors and say, you know, is this person a good, a good person to make a Panamanian, basically. And then in the case of Panama, the final signature on all approvals is done by the president. And so the presidents tend to wait until their last few months in office to sign all pending naturalizations. So if you're if your process completes and everything else is approved, the day after the new president is put in office, you could wait another. <laughs> you could possibly wait another five years before you get the approval, the final approval. So, the five-year residency time.
1: You're going to be waiting. That's hilarious. It's
2: five, it's five years. Yeah. So.
1: Oh my goodness.
2: So the, the residency time is it's only part of it there's the process time and my wife and I lived in Ireland long enough to to be naturalized and it took it took at least a year as i recall it's been a long time now but it took it took it took at least a year so it's not like you know you send in your application and they they send you back a passport and many countries have tests you know the US has tests of course as well they, they you have you know a geography and history test that is in the local language mhm in some countries, they'll do a language test. More That could just be the conversation you're having with the person that you're interviewing. Some will have a more formal test. Um, Panama's is not so difficult. Portugal's, I'm told, is that they really want to make sure that you are uh, at least conversant in Portuguese. So they will they will kind of question you in Portuguese.
1: And do you have your Panama? How, you said you've been in Panama for 10 years. Do you have your Panamanian passport yet?
2: Well, there's a whole long, crazy story about how this stuff you know, first of all, don't believe everything a lawyer tells you, and second of all, it all takes
1: time. I love long, crazy stories, so we've got time if you want to dig in a little bit. But if it's personal, don't don't feel pressured.
2: No, it's it's fine because it's it's a good uh, lesson learned. In in my Simon letter, I write every month a, a lesson learned, and I've been writing it for now five years or whatever. So there's sixty past lessons learned that I've done. But in this case, we started the residency process. So we bought. So take a step back. Panama had in 2003 or 4 when we actually started this process much lower investment levels for the residency programs that were available at the time one included what's called the reforestation visa which is if you invest in a certified reforestation project you can get residency a friend of mine has uh, done a huge teak plantation he was carving up plots to qualify for this residency program so i bought my wife and i bought a plot from him for that and started uh the process and we weren't in any rush because we weren't planning on moving to panama we were just getting it set up you know just to have the extra residency right back up eventually got it that process took the attorney two years i don't know why probably because we weren't pushing for it and so then we, so we first moved to panama under the reforestation visa and we moved in 2008 and it was good that we started the process when we did under the lower investment amounts because in august of 2008 the month we moved here um they basically shut down all programs, went into a room, and three weeks later, or however long, came back out and said, okay, here are the new rules. And the new rules for reforestation was they doubled the investment amount to 80000 not the end of the world, but they put in other requirements that made it impossible for my friend who had been doing this with these $40,000 plots to do it with $80,000 plots, because there was a minimum amount of land that had to be included, which was the minimum amount of land would have made them the actual practical investment, like 250 or 300 thousand dollars. Uh, so, so they basically wiped out that. But we were under the old program, and so we were grandfathered. That's one nice thing about Panama; they do tend to grandfather everybody if they change something. And so, but what the attorney didn't tell us, and what I didn't understand at the time, was that that was a temporary visa. So we had to renew every year. And so our first, and, and so here's the crazy thing. So you got you get the approval and you're good for a year, but it could take a year for the approval. And so what should have been we should have had permanent residency by say 2013. We were only on our second application by 2012 because of the slow process in immigration, and 2011 or 2012, I forget which now. Uh, the Friendly Nations visa came out. So we switched to the Friendly Nations visa to get the permanent residency on the first approval so we didn't have to go through three more processes under the approval processes. Right, and every time you go through approval process, you know, every time you go to renew, you're paying the government more fees and you're paying the attorney more fees. So again, this Friendly Nation one is excellent because it's it's one-stop shop. You pay your fees to the attorney the government wants, you got your permanent residency and you move on with your life.
1: And do you expect that the friendly nations will stay here for a while or any gossip, any rumors about them getting rid of it? Or uh, what have you heard?
2: We we were concerned originally because it was, it was actually put in place by executive order by Martinelli, the president, before the current one. The current president was the vice president of Martinelli, but they were from different parties and they didn't quite get along. So there was a lot of speculation early on that he was going to make it go away. He has not. And the next election is next May, I think, is next year. And so will the next president keep it? Probably. And, and the reason now is because it worked. Panama has been growing so fast and bringing in, trying to bring in international companies to use Panama as a regional hub. And many companies have done that, Pro- Procter & Gamble, Caterpillar, Adidas, many others that I can't remember, European companies especially. and they need to bring in, and you know, qualified employees. And so, and there's and there aren't Panamanians to take those jobs anyway. So with that work permit thing that comes with the Friendly Nations visa, that was kind of the, the, the premise behind it originally was to help take the, uh, to help allow Panama to continue to expand. And the, there's a growing middle class here. The unemployment rate in Panama, I think, is, is extremely low. So I don't see any reason that the next
1: president would make this
2: uh, go away. But once you're in, you're in. So once you have your permanent residency, if they take away the program, you you already have your residency.
1: Yeah, and that's the important thing. Once you have the permanent residency, that's really what um, allows you to get the citizenship. It's not necessarily what program you went on to to get the residency, correct?
2: Exactly. And that's a, another thing that the attorneys didn't tell us, you know, didn't tell me when I first asked 18 years ago, is that your Panama... It's five, it's five years of residency, but it's five years as a permanent resident. So all that temporary time that we were here under the reforestation didn't count towards the citizen timeline, citizenship timeline. So that's another question. Oh, yeah, of course. To ask when you're looking for citizenship, what, what, what's the actual rules? And so a lot of people started getting residency in Panama you know, a long time ago with the idea of getting citizenship in five years. But in fact, it was
1: going to take them more
2: like 10 years just to be eligible.
1: Hmm. So a lot to think about for sure. So in this conversation, we've touched on, it seems like many different things, but really this is all kind of under the same umbrella because when I was doing my research for this, uh, for this interview, I went to your website, I went to your bookstore and you had the, the wealth building and diversification kit, which was actually the recordings for which I just found out bef- like two seconds before we started the interview was the Leaf Simon offshore summit. So, talk to me a little bit about what you guys do with conferences, and, and kind of let's bring this all full circle. How this all works together?
2: Sure. And as, we, as I kind of said in, early on, that I think of us as an information company, information and judgment. So we've got, you know, my wife and I have decades of experience overseas in doing this, and so we and 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 learning, like we just talked about this, the Panama residency citizenship path thing. And so our goal is to put out opportunities ranging from lifestyle to asset protection. So the offshore summit uh, that you mentioned, that's where we gather all of as many of our contacts as, as can come. We do this annually. So some are able to make it one year, some make it the next year. Um, but to talk about banking options in the current banking world and cause it's always changing as well, you know, residency options, citizenship options, some investment options and then asset protection and structural options bring everybody together to have one big conversation about that. And you know, so at the conferences, you kind of pick and choose what topics fit your needs and your goals. And then you can have conversations with the experts uh, while you're there. We just had our lifestyle conference in Las Vegas last month, and there, that really is more about the destinations and just living. So we talk about residency options there, but in a different context. We talk about getting a local bank account, a driver's license, uh, health insurance, health care, uh, the kinds of things that you need to understand and think about if you're planning on actually uh, living in a place. And then we talk about 20 countries where you might consider living. So again, putting the options out there and people then can self-select into what they're interested in. Of course, the most interesting thing always is the people who come in saying, you know, I'm, you know, they come to an offshore conference and say, I'm, I'm here to learn about the banking. And then they leave saying, "Oh, I didn't even think about a second residency. I'm so glad that I set up the sessions." Um, or they come in saying, I'm, "I only want to move to Mexico." And they leave the the lifestyle conference and say, "Well, now I'm thinking about Portugal and Malaysia or something. I mean they just they, it opens their eyes to help them determine what they're interested in. You know people are interested in Mexico because they've heard of Mexico, but what they're really interested in is mountains and low cost of living. And they turn on, and, and a big city, so they turn on to Medellin-Colombia instead. So uh, it, it, it always is an eye-opener for, for some people.
1: No, I agree with that 100%. What's really interesting, and I, and I have your itinerary for, for next year in front of me, it's so interesting because all of these are, all your conferences are in different countries. So we got Portugal and Spain, we got Ecuador, Panama, Belize, uh, Vegas, Italy, like Santo Domingo. That must be so interesting to be able to do your conferences in different countries every time.
2: It is, and it's one thing um, that my wife would talk about. You know, we built a business, but we built a lifestyle for ourselves as well. And at our conferences, we say, you know, many of our best friends are attorneys because they're the attorneys we work with in these countries and they've become our, our good friends. And so, right, it allows us to go, these conferences allow us to go and continue our research, see friends, and update ourselves on the various countries. So the The, the country specific conferences. Like the one in Belize, or the one in Colombia, the one in Italy, those are how to, how to live and invest in those particular countries. So once someone comes to the US conference and they think, okay, I'm interested in Portugal and Colombia, well, then they can come to the Portugal and Colombia conference and drill down even deeper into that, uh, that particular country and see it for themselves. That's the one thing you know, people need to go and visit these places before they decide that that's the place they want to move because You won't know until you're on the ground and get a feel for it.
1: So that would go back to, I believe, rule number one of uh, Leafs, uh, (laughs) (laughs) actually see the place. Perfect. perfect. Exactly. Well, Leaf, it has been such an interesting conversation. I love these type of talks. Um, If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to get in touch with you, where can we send them?
2: So our main website is liveandinvestoverseas.com. And and the simplest way for anybody to get started is to sign up for the free daily e-letter and just see what we talk about. And from there, they can elect for some of the other free letters or, or the other products that they're interested in. Our conference schedule, um, we try and keep it up for uh, the next six months, but our next real estate conference, uh, we hold it every year in uh, in March. And so that's one that uh, is always interesting because there's always new real estate deals every year that we
1: find. Thank you so much for your time, Leaf, and I'll talk to you soon, okay? All right, thank you.